Welcome to Brown Bag Religion, the MF Casser podcast. Okay, uh, now it's 11.30 and I welcome you all to this week's MF Casser lunch. And this will be the last MF Casser lunch that I uh, host uh, in the capacity of uh, MF Casser director, because uh, from next week I will be <laughs> director of another institution, the Norwegian Institute in Rome, uh, and Islin will host the following or the remaining uh, MF Castle lunches uh, this term. And from uh, from August, Liv Ingeborg Lid will take over as MF Castle director. So, yeah, stay tuned and uh, uh, log on with us uh, during the also in the coming coming weeks. Uh, I am very happy to uh, to introduce uh, my colleague Christian Bull uh, today, uh, who is uh, who will share uh, with us uh, his research on the reception, or perhaps lack of reception, as I understand rightly, of Plato in Coptic uh, Egypt, early Christianity. Um, so I look very much forward to, to, to hear what you have to, to say about that. And as always, uh, all comments and questions are welcome after uh, the presentation. Please use the, uh, the chat or, uh, or the Q&A uh, function and I will moderate the, uh, the conversation afterwards. So Christian, the floor is yours. Right, the virtual floor. The virtual floor. Yeah, thank mm -hmm. you, uh, Christian. And I hope we get a chance to go to visit you in Rome at some point. And thank okay. you for giving me the chance to present. Were you going to say something? No, just that I, yeah. I should also uh, start by thanking uh, Lars, who saved my PowerPoint after my computer crashed uh, with some intense moments uh, today when I thought uh, this was uh, gone. So yes, uh, I guess uh, I will be talking about the reception of sorts of uh, Plato, but not the kind of receptions that classicists uh, appreciate, uh, really. Uh, so the focus of my talk today will be this uh, snippet, an excerpt of Plato's Republic, uh, chapters 588b to 589b uh, in Codex 6 of the Nag Hammadi codices. Um, and uh, in fact, this is only a four page long excerpt and pages you see a facsimile of uh, to the left. And in fact, the translation of this piece is of such a quality that it took 30 years from the discovery of these texts in 1945 until the first scholar realized that this was uh, Plato. Uh, and as one scholar of the textual tradition of Plato said, this little piece is of no value for the history of the text at all. So then you might ask, why should I bother you and talk about this text for only 15 minutes, but still time is valuable. Uh, and I, I think it is in fact a very interesting uh, text for three main reasons. Uh, one being that it is 
one of very few fourth and fifth century manuscripts of Plato at all. Uh, second, it is the only Greek philosopher translated into Coptic, uh, with one tiny exception that I will uh, return to uh, later on. And finally, um, what a lot of scholars have seen as mistranslations uh, might in fact be tendentious interpolations. And if that is the case, then it raises the interesting question, what is this tendency? So what lies behind this very, these very interesting and uh, somewhat confusing departures uh, in the Coptic translation uh, from Plato's uh, in Greek? So my plan for today is not to go through the text and highlight every discrepancy between the Coptic and the Greek original, but I thought it better to uh, highlight uh, this uh, context um, uh, and uh, talk about the reception of Plato in primarily the fourth, partly fifth century uh, in Egypt. Uh, and then towards the end of my talk, uh, I'll highlight uh, some uh, two of the odd discrepancies from Plato's Greek and uh, tell you what I what my hypothesis is that might have informed these uh, discrepancies. Uh, so that was my plan for today. So I want to start in Alexandria uh, and Alexandria of course uh, in becomes uh, beside Athens and often more than Athens, uh, a sort of main center for Platonism and Greek culture as such. And in Alexandria, you have a vibrant Platonic uh, tradition. Uh, and uh, in late antiquity, this becomes predominantly what we refer to as Neoplatonism. Uh, of course, this is a modern term. The ancient um, adherents merely called themselves Platonists, uh, but it is after this fellow Plotinus and his uh, very innovative uh, interpretations of Plato uh, that we talk about a Neoplatonism. Uh, and this continues in Alexandria uh, into the sixth century before it gradually disappears together with the Platonic Academy uh, in Athens. And uh, Neoplatonism, in fact, in late antiquity becomes the predominant philosophical uh, uh, school uh, so that the other main schools like Aristotelianism, Stoicism, Epicureanism, uh, they, uh, they are far, uh, far less importance than Platonism in late antiquity. So I'm not going to go through all of these people to the left, but this is just to illustrate the number of names associated with the Platonic tradition in Alexandria. Uh, but of course, uh, there were also Christians uh, that were very much engaged in the Platonic tradition in uh, Alexandria. Uh, and pride of place here has to go to Origen, the third century highly controversial Christian theologian. Uh, who uh, uh, really uh, engaged with Platonism, especially uh, to the degree that um, he was uh, himself actually excommunicated uh, centuries after his death in the sixth century. 
but by uh, this time, uh, his le uh, legacy was such that it had influenced a lot of other uh, Christians. And it might be possible, in, in fact, to say that after Origen, uh, the main uh, sort of Christian Platonism uh, can be called Originism uh, because of a lot of these uh, uh, people who follow Origen, uh, they in fact do not engage so much with Plato himself firsthand. So you find uh, little engagement directly with the dialogues of Plato, uh, but rather it seems that the, uh, they, it is Platonic thoughts diffused through the writings uh, of uh, Origen. Uh, so you have people like Didymus the Blind, Evagrius of Pontus, and Synesius in the fourth to fifth century, uh, who do seem to have some knowledge of Plato, uh, but who are, uh, especially Didymus and Evagrius, also called originists uh, in general. And then you have patriarchs such as Athanasius, Theophilus, and Cyril, and I've put them in parentheses because they cannot really be said to be Platonists, uh, but you can see that um, there are sort of Platon, uh, Platonizing or originist ideas uh, uh, underlying uh, a lot of these uh, authors. Uh, Theophilus, of course, was finally forced to break with uh, originism during the first originist controversy. So, but Alexandria is, of course, um, a tiny part of Egypt and not representative for Egypt as uh, such. Uh, in fact, early it was called Alexandria by Egypt. So it was in early uh, imperial times, not really seen as part of Egypt at, uh, at all, more of a uh, Greek polis. So what is the case then in the rest of Egypt? Well, in the literary record, we find very little traces of uh, um, Platonists. Um, there's this fellow called Alexander of Lycopolis in the late third uh, century, who seems to have run a philosophical school, uh, but we know of him only through a polemical treatise against the Manichaeans. And it is unclear even if his uh, philosophical school was in Lycopolis or in Alexandria, and it's only his name that uh, that makes him seem like he's from Lycopolis. Then you have this fellow Sosimus of Panopolis, who's really uh, 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 an alchemist, is what we know him in, uh, known as in posterity. Uh, but he refers to himself as a philosopher, and he quotes Plato, whom he calls the trice great Plato, uh, several times. Uh, and of course, there's the Nag Hammadi codices uh, up in Nag Hammadi. Uh, so these are some of very few traces of uh, the influence of Plato outside of uh, Alexandria. So I wanted to briefly go through some of the uh, papyrological evidence uh, for Plato. Uh, and um, uh, in fact, we have several uh, papyrological fragments of Plato especially from the second century of the common uh, era in the height of the Roman uh, Empire's uh, strength. So here in one in Oslo from the uh, politicus, our statesman of uh, uh, Plato, von Oxyrhynchus. 
uh, or here, another one uh, found in Karanas from the second or third uh, century. However, after the third century, the papyrological uh, record dwindles. So there are very few uh, papyri or uh, parchments, as in this case, uh, that post-date the uh, third uh, century. Um, so uh, this is a uh, parchment uh, piece uh, that is hypothesized to be from the fifth or sixth century. But even this is associated with many uh, problems. Uh, some scholars have dated this uh, also to the second century because the script is very classicizing. Uh, and so it is uh, controversial uh, to date papyri uh, on this, uh, uh, or parchments uh, as in this case, on this basis. So to give you uh, an overview of this uh, incredibly steep decline of uh, manuscripts for Plato, uh, I can show you the Trismegistos database that shows a search on Plato, uh, where nearly everything is in Greek. You see one Coptic, and that is our fragment. The rest is in uh, Greek. And then uh, the, uh, by far the most is also in papyrus rather than parchment, which gradually takes over from papyrus in later antiquity. And here you see uh, the uh, bulk of our material comes from uh, around the turn of the second century. And you see this very steep decline uh, up until the fourth uh, um, uh, uh, century and later. Uh, so here too, you see this steep decline of uh, Plato. Uh, we have 39 of him in Oxyrhynchus in the second century, uh, and it dwindles to uh, nothing. Even the fourth century, the, these are papyri that uh, is either third or fourth century. So it really is a dramatic decline. Uh, basically, the only ancient author surviving in bulk is Homer, who survives through school exercises and such. And here too, you see uh, the, uh, the ones remaining. You have uh, two that are even pseudo-Plato. It's not even Plato. Uh, and our Coptic fragment. And then these, uh, these, uh, these parchments that are dated to the fifth or even sixth century. And to illustrate this again, this is one of the uh, 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 parchments stated late, uh, which is a uh, 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 which has been washed clean of the fragments from Parmenides, and uh, then it has been used as a Coptic letter. So this is the sort of a dramatic illustration of the decline and the importance of Plato in uh, late antique uh, Egypt. Uh, and I'm not going to read through all of this, but this is a nice quote from Theodoret, and just from the last passage, you see, miners, herdsmen, and the gardeners are to be found who speak of the divine trinity and of the creation of the world, and who understand the nature of man much better than Aristotle and Plato. So this illustrates that now a biblical truth has really taken over from uh, the philosophers here. Uh, this is one of the few exceptions. So this is the only other philosophical uh, text that survived in Coptic. The rest are 
uh, Christian uh, texts. And this seems to have been a, a, a collection of sayings of the Greek uh, philosophers. Uh, and in form, they are very similar to the sayings of the Desert Fathers. Uh, so it collects often anonymous sages or philosophers uh, and, um, and then very sort of commonsensical uh, statements and with an, an interpretation. So I'm sorry, according to my watch, I'm supposed to be done already. Uh, do I still have some minutes? Yes, a few, uh, two, two more minutes. All right. Okay, yeah. Yes. All right, so let's talk now about the <laughs> fragment itself. Uh, so the Nagamadi codices is a series of 13 codices in Coptic, and they were found in uh, Upper Egypt uh, near the cliffs in a jar, according to the famous Pind uh, story. And uh, they were, of course, found in this uh, monastic heartland where the Pacomian federations had several monasteries close by, which has led to recent researchers such as Hugo Lundhaug and uh, myself who are inclined to see these Christian Pacomian monks as the likely uh, uh, copyists and readers of the Nagamadi uh, codices. So most of these texts are um, uh, heterodox Christian uh, texts. Uh, and in Codex 6, where you find Plato, we also have some important other texts that are not Christian, such as the Thunder Perfect Mind and some of the Hermetic uh, texts. Uh, so the uh, excerpt itself is in only four pages, and you see them here. And as you see, there's no title. This is the subscript title of the previous text. So there's actually no paratextual elements indicating that Plato uh, is the author uh, uh, of this text. And it starts sort of uh, uh, in media res uh, here. Uh, the passage is about the tripartite soul, uh, and it is when uh, Plato illustrates the justice in a city with the harmonizing between the three parts of the human soul. And uh, in this passage, he likens, of course, the logical part, the logisticon, with the human, and then the spirited part, the thymoides, with a lion, and the appetitive part with a multi-headed beasts. Uh, with partly wild and partly tame uh, animals. Uh, so this is, of course, uh, uh, an image uh, that Plato makes to illustrate his theory of the tripartite uh, soul. Uh, however, it seems the Coptic translator really um, uh, has a much more literal uh, reading of this and hasn't understood all of the nuances of uh, um, Plato. And there is indeed passages where it seems that he just uh, misunderstands uh, the Greek. Uh, however, uh, there are also passages where it seems that uh, he just has other uh, concerns that he wants to push. Uh, so I just want to give two uh, brief examples uh, towards the end here. I know I'm basically out of time already. Uh, so for those who know Greek and Coptic, it's there, but let's look at the translation. So uh, Plato starts this passage by saying, by for uh, so he explains how you can illustrate this, by forming an image of the soul uh, with speech, that is by means of speech. 
so that one who spoke might understand what it is he has said. So he's talking to a sort of imaginary interlocutor here. Whereas the Coptic has a very different take on this. He said, an image that has no likeness is the logos uh, of the soul, so that he will know, namely the one who said these things. So this is very peculiar, and unlike some of the other texts uh, where the Greek has become garbled in Coptic, this is not a particularly difficult uh, passage, right? So what is going on here? So my hypothesis is basically that, of course, uh, if you see the difference here, uh, you see that these are very, uh, very important terms for the originistic interpretation, especially of the teaching of the soul and the inner human, where he interprets Genesis 1, 26 to 27, with the creation of man according to the image, the akon, and the likeness, the homoiosis, which is uh, the Coptic ina here, so likeness, right? And according to origin, uh, the human was created according to the image, uh, but the likeness uh, is not given to the, uh, uh, to the uh, uh, human who is in the body. Uh, so, and the logos, of course, being the rational part of the soul. So what he's saying here, it seems, is that the logos of the soul, the rational part of the soul, is an image that has no likeness which in fact tallies fairly well with uh, what Origen uh, uh, says. Um, and so my hypothesis then, and there are several other passages that I can't go into now, uh, is that there is in fact Origenist uh, interpretations uh, going on here, not just a mistranslation. And this is the final one I wanted to show, is much more complex also in, in the Greek. Uh, but again, it goes to show that the uh, Coptic uh, just does something completely different. This is not a, uh, a mistranslation, I would argue, but it's uh, a use of Plato's text to say something uh, quite different. So uh, here he's, uh, Plato speaks about the one who says that it is uh, not beneficial to be righteous. Uh, and here you see these Coptic terms that he, he speaks, of course, of the image of the lion and of the wicked beast, uh, uh, which stands for the spirited and uh, appetitive parts of the soul. But the Copt enters, uh, enters in that uh, what is beneficial for someone is to cast down every likeness of the wicked beast and trample them along with the likenesses um, of the lion. So again, it, it shows that uh, really the Coptic translator is doing something uh, quite different uh, with the soul. And uh, this, of course, uh, might be interpreted uh, to ascetic discipline, to sort of conquer the irrational parts of the soul. Uh, but also, it might be read into this originist uh, um, concept of imageless prayer. But I really have run out of time, so I need to stop here, I suppose. <laughs> Yeah, uh, thank you. Uh, this is fascinating uh, material. Uh, I'm sure that uh, yeah, there are many in, in the audience who knows much about uh, about Coptic uh, Christianity and uh, uh, early Christian Egypt and papyri and and things like that. And I I welcome questions and comments from you for the. 
uh, the, the time we have, the remaining time.